It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports Thomas center with Rick Boring as always. And it's presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. We obviously did our post-Super Bowl podcast after the Bengals fell to the Rams on Sunday. Hopefully you guys got a chance to listen to that. Uh, as we broke that game down, we'll talk a little bit more, obviously, fallout from that and, and look ahead to, to what the Bengals need to do this offseason. But, Rick, it, it, it's – man, I still feel like I'm in a fog from Sunday. I'm trying to, to to get over just all the stuff that had to be done the last few days. Um, we did get a chance to talk to Zach Taylor yesterday. I thought he was really interesting in a lot of things he talked about, uh, to be honest with you. I guess the good news that came out of that was Joe Burrow's knee only requires rest and not surgery. Um, so, uh, we, we kind of now go to the fallout portion of it and we can look forward to college basketball tournament time coming up. We got to most of the main stuff on Sunday, right after the Super Bowl, but let's wrap a few things up. Skinny, we'll start with the blame game. We talked a little bit about it after the Super Bowl of things that went wrong, but I want you to pin it on whose fault was it the most that the Bengals didn't win the Super Bowl? Was it a, the Bengals offensive line, B, the coaching staff? C, the refs, or D, other slash Vernon Hargraves? <laughs> now, Vernon Hargraves didn't cost them other than, than 10 yards. They but made why is he still on the roster, Skinny? <laughs> he won't be, trust me. When they when they when when all is said and done and the 53 is put together for the 2022 season, you will not see Vernon Hargraves uh, anywhere to, to be found. Yeah, you know, um, if you're making me pick one, I guess I'll go to the offensive line. Um, that's the easy, safe one to me. Um, I don't pin it on the refs because while those calls were questionable at the end, I do think that there were a couple of penalties there. And the Bengals also got away with a big penalty on the T. Higgins touchdown. Let's face it. I mean, he clearly yanked Jalen Ramsey's face mask. So as much as you want to blame them at the end, you can also say, hey, you got a break with them missing a call, um, too. Some of it, too, is I, I, I almost just want to say, you know what? Good for you, Matthew Stafford. I, I, I want to give the credit where credit's due, but if you're making me pick one, I think it's clear to me it's the offensive line, and that's that's got to be the offseason focal point. Yeah, I would agree. I, th- I think you got to go offensive line, especially when you look at that final drive where the Bengals had their chance and you know they get stuffed on third and one with Samaj P. Ryan. And looking back, they obviously should have challenged the spot of that play, and it might have changed things a little bit. But the way it worked out, you get Aaron Donald pressuring Burrow almost sacking him and everything else that happened there at the end with Burrow getting twisted up on that knee and the drive before it was just the the Aaron Donald show and the Rams defensive line really changed the end of that game so I would go with Bengals offensive line as well as far as the refs are concerned I'm definitely not blame the refs guy in this game I will say it was really frustrating and disappointing to watch them swallow their whistles not call hardly anything for the entire game. And then on the final drive, get super flag happy. That yeah, is I, I, pretty disgusting. I, I'm noting you, yeah, I'm noting you on that, but I can also go back to the Kansas City, Bengals, Kansas City regular season game, right? Where those were penalties against Kansas City at the end. But if you're a Chiefs fan, you're like, oh, now you're going to throw all these flags? I, I, for whatever reason, I, I think that's just officiating in general. I don't know why it is. Uh, but in I mean, the Super Bowl, they are notorious for not calling hardly anything, especially early. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, the, the amount of times that we saw guys like towels being grabbed out of their pick or whatever, and they just let it go. It was constant throughout the game. And they showed multiple replays where there could have been DPI on this, holding on that, 
no calls. And then all of a sudden it's, we're calling every touch foul on that last drive. I mean, that's tough to watch. It is. I, I will, I will say this. I, I do think the league has to really look hard at, at, at officials in that regard and find some level of being more consistent. Even if that means you're throwing a thousand flags a game, if, if it takes that to have all this hand fighting and hand combat stuff stop to where the point of, well, it's becoming easier for the offense. Well, so be it. Um, I, I think that's, that's where I'm kind of like that in basketball, right? Where you, you have hardly anything called at certain stages of the game. And then when it gets down the stretch or vice versa, everything's called early in the last three minutes, you might as well, if you don't, you know, if you don't tackle somebody, you're, you're not getting called for a foul or, or vice versa. I think they're just, they're, I think that's the part for every, especially with TV replay today, where you can see every, almost literally every aspect of the field and, and go, oh, wait a minute, there was a penalty there. And wait a minute, well, that guy. I, I think we're at that stage with officiating where if it requires them to throw literally 40 flags in a game to get some of this stuff to stop, then throw away. Yeah, I also love, the, the internet's funny this way. Like if you're on Twitter or probably any other social media feed, the few days after the Super Bowl, you're just seeing constant screenshots where football right. guy has circled this or circled that. It's like, look, uh, Andrew Whitworth was lined up off sides on this play and there was no call. And Aaron Donald was in the neutral zone on this play and there was no his call. Head. And, his yeah, head. Yeah. And uh, so-and-so there was a 20 yard cushion here on this play that Joe Burrow didn't see, or they would have won the game. And it's like, well, okay, chief, relax. Like <laughs> you're talking about a screenshot on TV. You know what I mean? My guess is Joe Burrow might've seen that too. And maybe there's a little more to it than we saw in that one split second of a screenshot. And there's a reason to go there, what have you. But, and, you know, maybe there's sometimes that they really do miss these things and the rest really do miss them. And you caught them because you have the benefit of getting to watch it back a thousand times on replay and uh, while the screen is stopped and all of that. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I think most of this stuff was goofy. The one thing I will say is in this game specifically, and we see it in the Super Bowl all the time. There was no doubt that they were just letting things go and letting things go. And then all of a sudden you get flags on pretty touch foul calls. I mean, on that last drive. So is what it is. I definitely don't think the refs cost the Bengals that game, but it sucked to watch it play out that way at the end for sure. But look, well, the, it, the Bengals could have scored on any of their four or five drives in the second right. half leading up to what happened at the end too. And it would have been a different game. Yeah. I mean, score a touchdown after the interception, right? That's 24 points right there. Yeah. Skinny, what did you think of the halftime performance at the Super Bowl? I, I Listen, I like that genre of music, as you know, but it, I, I wasn't over the edge like everybody. I, I, I saw so many people like almost overreacting to the point of thinking they saw the Beatles for the first time, for goodness sakes. I thought it was good. I enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't like gaga about it. Like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. It was good. I mean, yeah. I'm, so I'm with you. I, I was really excited about who was doing the halftime show. I thought it and was I like the musical. I like the musical choices. I thought the choices were all right for every, every, every one of the artists. Yeah. I, see, I, I liked the show for sure. I mean, I think it was one of the better halftime shows of my lifetime and, and all of that. I mean, it's not, it's not the best, but it's, it's top five for certain during my lifetime, I would say. And yeah, Princess I, was pre- Princess was pretty damn good. Dude. It's it's impossible to top at this point. Like, I mean that that's got to be the number one, right? Um, but this was fun. It was different. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons that it meant a lot to a lot of different people. So I thought it was a good halftime show. But I will say a couple things that I didn't love is I thought they had 
like you said, they had the right song selection, it felt like for the most part, but they played like weird little pieces of the songs. Well, and- I don't know. I mean, I, I thought I thought the, the piece of still that they played was pretty damn good. I mean, the, the long piano intro was pretty damn good. Yeah, that was great. But uh, but like they, it, I know you have to do a medley. You can't play out like right, an entire right, song. Right, right, right. But it just felt like most of the songs, they never really let it get into the song enough or they just played kind of a weird piece of it. Or like the Kendrick Lamar part, Ken, having Kendrick was there was such a big deal, but like the having him play the song that he did and that just that little segment I thought was weird. And then the other thing was the set looked awesome. It looked like it was going to be awesome. It didn't show all that well on TV. I didn't think they had, for whatever reason, maybe the cameras weren't in good enough position or whatever, but it looked kind of weird on TV, I thought, in terms of the big white boxes that they were in and like if you were actually at the stadium I think that would have been hard to watch depending on what side of the field you were on right because it was funny because the because the the facade the front facade was facing away actually yeah it was facing the different way than the way the singers were performing the singers were performing to the open side of those boxes which meant the singers if you were on the other side of the field were singing away from you for the most part where you could see the front facade of those buildings right Right. So, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it, it was it was good. I was excited about it. I enjoyed it. But I honestly kind of would have expected a little more, if I'm being honest, out of who they had. Well, I, I did see I don't know if this was an official prop bet or not. I know it was talked about of the over under. And I wish I could go back and count it. Maybe, you know, off the top of your head or you saw this. I think the over under for number of songs somebody somebody picked was ten and a half. Well, wow, I have no idea that? if they did if they got to that or not. I can't remember how many different songs they mixed in there. Yeah, I mean, Mary J did what three or two? I, I want to say two. I want to yeah, say Drake. Yeah, I I think it came close to that number because Fifty had a song, Eminem had two, Dre and Snoop probably had four or five combined, right? Yeah, the Fifty part was great. I mean, because we had no idea he was going to be there, and that was well, such I a no perfect. Song I had no too. idea. I had no idea. He- I had no idea he's not drinking vitamin water anymore, it looks like. Well, uh, look, people need to lay off my man 50. Like, you know, the dude's in his 40s. He's a dad now, I'm sure. Like, he's got a little dad weight on him. You know, he couldn't be... I, like, here's the thing. Everyone's calling 50 fat. If they saw him it, it out to eat or in your average group of guys at a bar, he'd be the most jacked dad out of that group. No one would say he's a word jacked. to that guy. Yeah, yeah, he's still jacked. Everyone's giving him crap because he doesn't look like he's, you know like he's in the the streets and he's 30 anymore and ripped. It's like, well, of course not. He's been a millionaire for years. Uh, he sold vitamin water for a billion dollars or whatever it was. Like, of course he's not ripped anymore. That makes total sense to me. I don't, I don't understand why everyone's given 50, a bunch of crap, you know, by like, the way, as is, 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 is much dope as Snoop is, has, has smoked in his day. How is that not dude? How's that dude not had the munchy, the munchy weight put on him? Well, that's just got to be a uh, a genetic, genetic? Thing, right? Yeah, yeah he's right. he's got to be the guy that couldn't gain weight no matter what he ate. My my dad's that way. I mean, my dad puts away food like you would not believe. Eats three times the amount I will in a sitting, and my dad weighs like 165 pounds and will never weigh a pound more in his life. That's the Barney Fife syndrome. Go look him up, kids. Andy Griffith Show weighs about 135 pounds. All right, Skitty, back to some actual football talk. What position should the Bengals target with their first pick in the upcoming draft? Well, it's clear quarterback. I mean, he was so bad down. No, Um, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear offensive line, right? Um, Really? Now, now, well, 
I guess not with the first pick. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, pick. I was thinking. I, I was thinking offseason. No, I. I think. I think corner, in my opinion, and it may be you have to trade up to get a corner. You may have to package some picks to go get the corner you want. Because I think to me, and I've I've written this, I've said this. Um, I'll draft an offensive lineman, Rick. I'm just not drafting one in the first round. I, I, I need a first round guy to be an immediate impact guy. And that's where, listen, I get the Jonah Williams selection in 19. They absolutely had to get an offensive line cornerstone piece. And he's been okay. Um, at least he's been a starter. And he was a starter from day one. So that was an immediate impact guy. But your last couple of drafts, you got a medium impact immediate impact franchise quarterback, immediate impact franchise wide receiver. And now to me, um, they'll get you a shutdown corner. That, that to me is the spot. I can't think of another spot. Now, listen, if there's nobody there, you couldn't package to get, and there is a, a lineman, a tackle at 30, whatever that is, 31, and you just can't avoid it, then I think I would do that. But to me, I'm, I'm addressing offensive line and free agency for the most part. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of fiddling around with the draft stuff. I mean, if you look at this offensive line, Rick, of your starters, and granted, we can argue it's a terrible offensive line, but I'll give Zach Taylor credit yesterday. I mean, I think he's right in what he said. I don't think he believes this. You know, this was an offensive line that got them to the Super Bowl. You had an yeah. undrafted free agent at center. You had a, a left guard who you signed off the street after he was cut from Buffalo. Your left tackle was a first-rounder. Your right guard was a six-round pick. And your right tackle was, was a guy who was signed off the street. Now, again, that's not a great formula. It got your quarterback sacked 70 times, but it also got you to a Super Bowl. But I think it shows you, whenever you're wasting picks on, on offensive linemen high, uh, or drafting offensive linemen high, I think you're wasting picks because I just don't think that's the right formula to go get these guys. Well, and, and we've seen that in the past. When you went through the teams, the final four teams in last year's, playoffs right you right. talked about who was on each of those offensive line a lot of them were late round guys free agent pickups you know guys that were undrafted so you're right I, I don't think it makes any sense for the Bengals to get entangled with in another first round pick who's unproven and who kind of just adds to the mix of we don't know what we have here with this group right. of guys. We got to give him time to play him to see if he can get, and we got to let Joe get hit a bunch more before we figure out what we've got. And maybe this guy progresses to the point that he can be a starter or he can be an impact guy, but that's, that's too much. Like the window is now you've already proven that you got to go and get at least one more new starter on that offensive line through. Oh, I think at least two. I think immediate. at least, well, I mean, yeah. sure. You, but that's you, you not, a, that's, you, you, Look, everyone wants to say, right Let's just get new guys here, here, there. That, that's we've seen. It's much harder to do that than it looks. You know right. what I mean? No, like, I, I, you can't just say we've got two new starters in the same offseason necessarily in the offense. Yeah, I, I think to me though, I, I think, I think you can. My chips are in the Ryan Jensen Jensen table to go get him and make him the starting center. I think that fit, fixes a lot of things. And, and I love Trey Hopkins, great dude. Did a lot of things. Was playing on a on a bad knee all season long and toughed it out. And to credit to him, just wasn't very good. Um, Ryan Jensen's a huge upgrade. And then depending on what you want to do at right time, maybe maybe you opt to resign Riley Reef, and maybe he says, you know what, I'll give this one more good year. Sure. I mean, if you look, they did average less sacks per game with Riley Reef in the lineup than without him. Not by a ton, about a half a sack a game, but that adds up. They've got to fix the interior of that offensive line first and foremost, I think. Right. So I would love for them to go get a big free agent splash at center. As far yep. as Zach Taylor's comments about, well, they did get us to the Super Bowl and all that and people getting worked up about that, please relax. No, like, you know who's the biggest dope in the world? And honestly, this guy is a clown. 
Mike Tannenbaum on ESPN, he, he is, that, that was kind of his take of getting worked up over that. I'm like, dude, what do you think he was going to say? These guys sucked, and if they'd only played better, we'd have won. You really think a coach is going to say that? After he just played in the Super Bowl. Like, Zach Taylor's right. point is right to make as the coach exactly. of Exactly. He should be talking his guys up like that. They did get to the Super Bowl. Now, everyone inside Paul Brown Stadium, everyone inside the city of Cincinnati, everyone that watched the Super Bowl or any of the Bengals playoffs games are more than well aware of the fact that the Bengals made it in spite of their offensive line and must do something to upgrade that. That's not lost on anybody, but it does Zach Taylor no good at a pep rally or press conference right. a few days later to be bad mouthing these guys and throwing them under the bus when they just played in the Super Bowl. Chill out. He knows what needs to be done. Everyone knows what needs to be done. They're going to address it for you to want him to throw those guys under the bus and like hold them accountable or whatever you want them to do is just ridiculous. Yeah. I thought the questions were fine. Ben baby asked a couple of questions about it. I thought they were fine. In fact, I've got yeah. them both here because the part I transcribed yesterday he says, as you move forward through the off season, how much draft capital and cap space will be used on the offensive line. That's where he kind of talked about the whole Super Bowl thing. And he said, he followed up. He said, well, that being said, Joe was sacked 70 times. He said, you know, what do you attribute those 70 sacks, the majority of them then? And the answer was this. And this will tell you right here, right, you know, that, that he knows it's the offensive line too. And he just simply says, we just have to be better as a unit. Fair, dude. I, and I, yeah. I don't think Ben was, Ben wasn't expecting him to, to roll his guys on the bus. I, ben got the answer he wanted. I got the answer I wanted out of the, at that question. Um, so I, I fully... I fully get I fully get the question being asked and the answer that was given. Yeah, you, you have to ask the question. I don't care at all about that. I'm just saying, like, p- fans oh, who are know, worked yeah, up about the concept that he didn't roll those guys under the bus immediately. It's like, what do you really are you that dense, really? Are you that stupid that you need to be told everything explicitly and you need everybody to be so blunt and such a jerk off that you need Zach Taylor to say, Yeah, our offensive line sucked three days right. after the Super Bowl? Right. Like, just right. grow up a little bit, please. Right. And the proof will be in the pudding this offseason when they – listen, Rick, they knew they had to address it last offseason. They tried their best. They went and signed Riley Reef. They liked Quentin Spain. They thought they were set. They were, they were rolling the dice a little bit that Trey Hopkins was going to come back fully healthy and, and, and the performer he had been the last couple of years. He didn't. They, they liked Jonah Williams. Understandable. He's a 2019 first-round pick, okay? They, they went and signed Riley Reef. They really liked Quentin Spain, and for the most part, all year, Quentin Spain was good. They then rolled the dice – that they were going to draft Jackson Carmen and he was going to be plugged in at right guard. They had fallback plans in Xavier Suafilo, and they kind of fell into Hakeem Adeniji a little bit in the second half. Listen, you weren't going to... That's that's the that's the tough part about this. The, the Green Bay Packers are having to decide, do we want to have a $46 million Aaron Rodgers cap hit? And if not, is Jordan Love the guy when then we can take the 46 mil and fix other spots on our football team? That's the thing with the salary cap. You can't fix everything at once. You just can't. And by the way, I'm not convinced that Jackson Carmen can't play at all. I well, think there's still a world yeah, in which he helps this team long term. Right. And listen, I was asked that by some people too, and I they said, well, you know, what happened to him? I said, there was a lot of things. A, he wasn't a pro early on. He didn't act like a pro early on. He fell behind because of that. He was a kid making a complete position switch. And listen. Very rarely do rookie linemen come in this league and set it on fire. I can give you Quentin Nelson. And I know Penny Sewell got better as the year went along, but I sure didn't hear Penny Sewell's name along with Anthony Munoz this year as the season was being played out. That's just the way it goes. And they were, and Detroit was afforded the luxury of playing Penny Sewell every snap because they sucked and they let him develop. The Bengals got to a point of, we just need to win games. We can't let this kid. I mean, honestly, if this was a five and 
a 12 Bengals team, I'll bet you Jackson Carmel would have taken every snap humanly possible. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You give him as much time to develop as you can, but this team was competing right now and it is what it is. But I, like I said, I, he's not going to get any more time going forward. You know, it's not like they've got a bunch right. of uh, practice games to give him or games that don't matter. So he's going to have to figure it out himself. And I'm not convinced he will, but I'm also not convinced he won't because there were times where, especially in the running game, when he was in there, he looked dominating. You could see why they drafted him where they drafted him because he does have some physical tools that are impressive when he gets that moving in the right direction, but there's just a lot to learn from him. So, so we'll see. Uh, you mentioned Joe Burrow. No surgery is going to be required. He has a sprained MCL in his right knee. It was a re-aggravation of an injury he had earlier in the year. He's just going to need rest to recuperate. What are you expecting from Joe Burrow this offseason? Um, in the offseason or into next season? In the offseason. I mean, leading into next season. But what do, what are we going to see from Joe Burrow this offseason? It's the first real offseason that he's had. That's a good question. I, I'm looking forward to seeing him in OTAs. Um, that is a really good question. Uh, you know, in addition to the knee, just needing some rest. Um, he's not going to need surgery on the pinky. So that's a good thing, too. Um, I, I, honestly, Rick, it's a hard one for me to answer because I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing him come April when I haven't seen him in an April. Um, right. You know, I saw him in OTAs a little bit where he showed up. But I, I think that's a that's a great question because he hasn't really had that luxury of, of those off seasons so far. Obviously, COVID and then the knee rehab. So uh, I, I think, you know, as much as he's been really good these first two years, what can a full offseason give him? It's interesting to think about. I mean, he was kind of really gutting it out there towards the end of the year when you think about hurting that knee multiple times, injuring the pinky and all that stuff. And he was still making all the plays with his feet and doing plenty of those things in the playoffs. It's interesting to see what this guy is going to look like where he has he has to rest a little bit to get through this MCL sprain. But for the most part, he's going to have a pretty normal offseason. And with the way he works, you imagine he's going to attack the offseason. I I really believe there's more upside. I, I think Joe Burrow is going to get better this year. I do, too. I, I don't I don't think there's any doubt about his continued growth. I, I think you saw that as this year went along. Um, how much better was he after the bye week than he was before the bye week? And that before the bye week included that big game at Baltimore. But the second half, the turnovers got less and less. Um, some big, big, big numbers went up. He, you know, he had to overcome all the sack issues in the playoffs to take a team to the Super Bowl. I'm with you. I, I think a full offseason for him, a normal offseason, will only benefit him because he's not really had that so far. And he's a guy who likes to work. On Wednesday, the Bengals announced they have signed head coach Zach Taylor to a contract extension through the 2026 season. Skinny, do you like that decision by the Bengals? Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of standard operating procedure, a five-year deal. He only got the three-year deal to start with. And obviously they, they, I think that showed that Mike Brown wasn't all bought in on Zach initially and that he had to prove himself. And um, the question was asked of him too, about feeling the pressure of this year. Um, you know, he talked about, hey, every every year you have to have a sense of urgency. I, I think there was some real pressure on him this year to succeed. I, and I think he, his answers, you can tell how grateful he is for this opportunity. He even said, he goes, if they didn't hire me, I don't know if I'd ever been a head coach. And maybe he wouldn't have been. Um, and he maybe he still isn't the answer, Rick. I mean, we're going to find that out because now, right. now, you know, the pieces are there. I gave him a pass in year one. I didn't quite give him the pass last year. And then this year was kind of a prove it to me year. Hey, you proved it. Good for you, man. Um, as much as I was critical of the hire only because he didn't 
the resume didn't suggest he was ready to be a head coach in any way, shape, or form. Credit to the guy. I mean, he's he's done a great job. I can still question some of the things he does as a play caller. I think that part is fair. But as far as setting tone, culture, expectations, all those things, guys, the guy has proven it. And so, yes, this next time around, a five-year deal probably feels right. He's earned, listen, there's going to be a honeymoon period even if things go haywire the next couple of years to where then you're deep enough in that contract where you can make a decision if your Mike Brown did not retain him. But that's, yeah, I think that's about right. A five-year extension off of this makes sense to me. Yeah, and I mean, that's an interesting thought too. How much goodwill does this buy Zach Taylor? You know, I mean, what ha- like this was amazing, but it was also unexpected. What happens if this team tanks next year and only wins eight games or nine games, God forbid, and then the year after that is very average? Like, you know, where, where do we go from here with Zach Taylor if things get bad? That's a fascinating question because I really don't know. And I don't, I don't think anyone expects that to happen, but it's not out of the realm of possibility either in the NFL, I guess. And then but I can also, I can also argue though, Rick, he's grown each year as a coach, right? Year but, one was kind of deer in the headlights with a bad roster. Year two was all right, new quarterback and, and kind of dealing with some of those things. And the team to its credit kind of gritted its way to, to four wins. You could argue seemed to kind of rally around him a little bit, to be honest. Correct. I mean, I was shocked at how, how together the locker room still seemed after year two when they still sucked and he started getting rid of the veteran guys. Right. Right. And and then obviously then, then, then this year, and he even talked this year. I remember it still sticks with me of, um, I don't know if it was my question or somebody's question. It might've been my, uh, but I remember the answer was, you know, coaches are allowed to get better too. We're allowed to yeah. improve. And I thought, you're right. You know what? That's a, that's a fair point. I I'm with you. That, that quote I thought was a really good one. It was a really poignant one. It was a really self-aware one by Zach too. To, to realize, I, I look, guys, I, I don't have all the answers. I never said I did, but I am figuring this thing out, and we are getting better, and I, I think we deserve credit for that. I, I couldn't agree more. I do think he's gotten better. How do you think he stacks up right now among current NFL head coaches? Like, where would you put him? Is he at the bottom? Is he somewhere in the middle of the pack? Is he now towards the top? Is he one? Of, should he be looked at as one of the better coaches now that he's made a Super Bowl run? Like, I don't know exactly how to assess that. that that's a great question because – Kyle Shanahan, right, gets this genius label. And I'd look and go, okay, you went to a Super Bowl. Well, Zach Taylor's going to a Super Bowl. And I don't label him a genius. Sean McVay, super genius, even before he won the Super Bowl. Well, and right, he got like validated that might be by, true. <laughs> right, but he got validated by winning the Super Bowl, right? Right, yeah. So, you know, that that's a really good question. I would say i put him at least in the top half. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got the question, how much of it is him and how much of it is Joe Burrow at this point? And here's the other part. How much of that really matters? Because we've seen it's really hard to be a good coach in the NFL without some type of quarterback leading you. Yeah, I would say, you know what? If I went and coached basketball at Moeller, I'd be a hell of a lot better coach than if I coached at Villa Madonna Academy. Exactly. And I mean, we've that goes for everyone. You've got to have the players. The guys who think it's about them are usually the ones who end up going up in flames some, at some point in their career. So it's no doubt that you got to have the players. But even... More so, this is interesting because he's attached to such a young supernova in Joe Burrow, where it's a, it's a, an even more extreme case where you see a guy go from looking really bad as a head coach and unprepared to now all of a sudden he's in the Super Bowl. And a lot of it has to do with this young quarterback who's taken the league by storm. And it makes it difficult to assign credit for what we've just watched. But I, I'm with you. I think he's clearly a top half of the NFL coach right now, if, if nothing else, after he's gone to a Super Bowl, And I mean, quite honestly, if, if this was, you know, a few years down the road, 
and other teams were were looking for another head coach, he'd probably be a guy that teams were trying to wrestle away from the Bengals. He'd be a guy that would be getting interest. So, I mean, he, he's going to be one of the, the hotter names given what he's done. And if this thing continues, then uh, he'll, he'll earn his place among the top head coaches in the NFL if they can keep it rolling. Yeah, and along that quarterback line, though, and I, I think it's true. I mean, I think there's a there's a connection between those two guys as well, though. I think that, you know, as much as we want to give Joe Burrow a lot of credit, and rightfully so, maybe some of that credit's also due to Zach Taylor. Yeah, and it should be. He should get some credit for it because you, it, it, you don't have one without the other to some extent. Now, the quarterback I mean, is way more important, but the coach does matter, and that relationship does matter. And we've seen coaches screw up good quarterbacks before. Yeah, Rick, when we saw Andy Dalton first year under under Zach Taylor, they didn't go five wide. They were trying to use the, the Sean McVay under center, um, downhill running, off play action, all of those things. They went five wide for one reason. Joe Burrow likes it. It's what he did at LSU. He likes to be able to pick out the mismatch. And so they kind of tailored their offense to him. And there's some credit there, too, as opposed to going – no, Joe, this is what we do. And I was a big guy. I, trust me, I was a big get under center more guy. And I still think there should be more of that. That's just my opinion. And I'm certainly not a football coach. I'm just giving my opinion on the topic. Um, but in, in that regard, Zach Taylor went, all right, you're comfortable doing that. We'll get five wide out there for you. Yeah, well, and I always think no matter what sport it is, the best coaches adapt to their talent and their personnel. And credit to Zach Taylor and his staff because they did that. Agreed. No, I... I yeah, and I think the five-year extension feels right. All right, I got two questions left. They're both related here. Th- this is our betting segment, okay? We're going to go into the betting segment right now and because I've got two questions here, and, and one is uh, odds for next year's Super Bowl. Super Bowl 57, the Bengals are 11-1 to 1 odds. That is fourth best odds. Out right, of- the Rams, the, the Chiefs are one, the Bills are two, the Rams are three, the Bengals are four. Do you like it, Skinny? Um, the the thing that the thing that's a little troublesome there is I just reeled off three of the top four teams, right? And three of them are in the same conference. It's the Bills and the Chiefs and the Bengals, which is going to tell you how hard it's going to be to get back to the Super Bowl next year. Hell, it's going to be hard to win the division next year. Um, the schedule's really difficult because they now play some first play. They play a first place team from a like division. Um. I don't. I don't think I'd bet those odds at 11 to 1, Rick. I really don't. Yeah, I, I with you right there, too, because it was a long shot that they made it this year. It was a bit of a shock to everyone. And like you said, you look at what you have to compete with going forward, even with a Joe Burrow, who may be the best quarterback in the NFL for years to come. And I can get behind that and I can believe it in my heart of hearts. You still got Pat Mahomes. You still got Josh Allen. And you still got the teams that they had behind that. I mean, like it is going to be a bear. And with that said, I do not like the 11 to one odds either. I don't like the 14 to one odds that I'm showing on DraftKings right now. Yeah. I mean, the team that even scares me just as much is, is a healthy Baltimore. I mean, they, I know everybody doesn't want to hear this, but it's true. They were hurt all year and they were totally hurt at the end without their quarterback, get their quarterback back. Now, granted, I've been on that train of, Lamar Jackson's going to get hurt. And once he gets hurt, he's going to keep getting hurt. And and that, but I, I can't bank on that. I can't make book on that for sure. So um, the, Baltimore scares me just in the division alone. Yeah, understandably. So brings me to my next question, Skinny. Will the Bengals be back in the Super Bowl in the next five years? 
yes, in the next five years, I think they'll make the playoffs enough, Rick, and at some point probably be the best team after the roster's fully done. At some point, they'll be the best team in the conference, which will earn them a, a, a one seed. So, yes, in the next five years, absolutely. I'd be stunned if they're not. I'd be if, disappointed if they're not. If you're getting even money, yes or no, either side on that, would you bet yes? I bet yes, absolutely. Really? Yep. I hate to say it. I think I would go no. Really? Just because of what we're taught. I mean, it's just so hard to get back to the Super Bowl. I know everyone expects it. And I know Joe Burrow's great. I just don't think it works that way the way everyone else does. And I like, uh, maybe I'm just too conditioned to being a Cincinnati professional sports fan, but I, I don't know. I just don't believe within five years, they're going to make another well, run like that. The, the reason I do is again, like I said, I, I think a lot of it is, do I think this team is going to be a playoff caliber team over the next five years? I think absolutely every year they should be in the playoffs. Um, uh, listen, they may not make it once because of an injury or a couple of times, but I, I think in that five-year window, Rick, I think this is clearly a playoff caliber team. And I agree you saw that. it. If, if you're going to be in the playoffs, you got a fighting chance. I mean, so to me, that I think that's the bigger question. If you think they're going to be a playoff team perennially over the next five years, and with what I think the talent's going to eventually be from a roster perspective, then my answer would be, yeah. If, if you gave me even money on that, I would still bet yes. You know, maybe that's really the trick as a Cincinnati person is to train yourself to realize that it's actually not impossible to win a playoff game. Right. Like that well, felt very impossible no matter what sport yes. it was for the last however many decades. But now that you mentioned, it's like, yeah, you know what? Winning those three games wasn't actually that hard for this Bengals team. Like I could see them doing that again, I guess. So, well, yeah, if you if you somehow along the way over the next few years are good enough to get the bye, then you're literally only winning two playoff games, both at home to get to a Super Bowl. I think that's. I think that's doable. I think it is too. I still think I would probably bet no, but you're kind of talking me into a yes there. You're you're getting. Well, I, I think the winner. If you, again, if you're going to ask me for sure next year and give me even money, I'd say absolutely no. But you gave me a five year window, year. and like yeah. I said, I think this window for this team from a from a roster perspective, um, there's not a lot of holes left to fill. There are some, and there's a couple of big ones left to fill. But now you've got you're going to give me three or four more off seasons to fill all those needs. Absolutely. All right, just a note there on our betting segment. Because the football season lasted so long this year and we only have a little bit of runway left on the college basketball season, we're not going to do a full pick em for the college basketball season. We'll definitely get into something like that for the postseason, uh, but we'll have to kind of figure out some more prop bet type things and some other stuff to carry the betting segment the next couple of weeks as we finish out the last two weeks of the college basketball season here. Um, I like to say I can make a prop bet on 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 Reds over under, but I don't I don't uh, know if they're going to how many over under games are going to play. And again, you you talk about this Reds thing, this MLB thing, like it exists. I don't even know what you're speaking of. I like <laughs> I haven't thought about it in over a year. I'm ready to skip right past baseball season at this point. Bengals took us far enough that I think I can just get back to you, you give me college basketball and March Madness, and then a little NBA playoffs. I think I can get all the way back to training camp for the Bengals off of this. Well, the way it works I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I'm taking a vacation week next week. When I come out of that, it's going to be combine week into free agency, into the NCAA tournament, into OTAs, into the draft, into rookie mini camp, into mini camp. Then I'll have my little bit of time in June off. It'll feel like, I swear July is going to be here for training camp before you know it. I swear it's going to be. Well, it will. And when you're actually covering, watching, enjoying a good NFL team, it really is a 12-month-a-year sport. I mean, and it does not stop when you're actually good. 
So yeah, Paul Paul Daner Jr. asked asked uh, Zach yesterday about, and, and I thought about this too. It's funny when the question was asked. I thought, yeah, that's a great question. You know, they've had the last few off seasons, or his first two off seasons of having some time of uh, of of evaluating talent and all those things. Right. Suddenly, right. you're all of a sudden condensed. And I know Zach said he's taking his wife to the beach next week, and certainly deserves some time off. I mean, my goodness, this season it was long. Uh, and and I know I'm speaking the obvious, but when you're involved in it, it was long, man. When I'm used to seasons ending in late December and you're now in mid-February, I can only imagine for players and coaches how long that season felt. But yeah, I mean, he's going to get off that vacation, off that beach and go right to the combine, right to free agency, right to draft preparation. I mean, it's quick. It's on top of them fast. It is. It's going to be right back again before you know it with training camp for next season like you said so uh, enjoy your brief reprieve here skinny and then uh, get right back to work let's switch gears here from football to college basketball and really we've been talking college basketball around here for a while but a lot of people may not be paying attention they may have been wrapped up in the football season so what we're going to do here skinny is we're going to give them a little bit of an intro back into the local college basketball scene. And we're going to come up with a headline here for each of the local teams to kind of uh, tell you where they're at right now, tell you the way their season's gone. Okay. We'll start with, we've kind of been going every week by who the hottest team is or who had the best week. And (laughs) There's, there's only one team that had the best week. And I think we know exactly where we're going in that case. And that's the NKU Norse once again. Yeah, so do you need a headline for them? Yeah, give me a headline or do your best. Give me just a little snapshot here of where we're at. How do you explain the the NKU season to someone who just started paying attention? On the rise. Oh, I like it. A little horizon, play on the horizon. Yep, on the too. rise. Yep, for the horizon league. And I had to spell rise, R-I-Z-E for That's this, right. this case. On the, on the rise. I mean, NKU has come from sub-500 in the league, Rick, to now, I well, I guess it's a full game out, technically a first place. They're one game out in the loss column. First place in the league. I mean, you talk about quickly moving up the ladder, man. It has been, a, what, a two-week ascension for the most, three-week, I guess, ascension for the most part. Well, and the crazy thing is you might say, oh, okay, well, they have a front-loaded schedule, and now they're beating up on some of the weaker teams. No. they, no, they lost beat- to Robert Morris. They yeah, lost to Robert Morris. They lost to Robert Morris. They got smacked by Purdue Fort Wayne. They lost to Milwaukee. Some of the worst teams in the conference earlier in the year. But during these last two weeks where they've made this run and they've propelled themselves back to the top of the conference, they're in the top three now, they've beat every team ahead of them. They have beat Oakland. They've beat Wright State twice at home and at their place. They've beat uh, Cleveland State. State. Yeah, I mean, like, they are – they're hotter than any team in the conference right now. They are playing the best basketball in the Horizon League, and I don't even think that's really up for debate. I think every team in the Horizon League would tell you that right now. Yeah, no, I, they've gotten themselves to the point of, of at least in the conference. What, you got like four league games left? Three league games left? Yeah, four. Four. Um, and I got the schedule. And two of those are Robert Morris and Youngstown State at home. They have to go to Detroit and Oakland. If you can split those, you go three and one, you're getting a first round bye. You're getting that crazy bye thing. Yeah, well, they're in a really good situation right now, period, because the top five this year due to, I, I take that back. UIC has been allowed back in. So the top four teams top four, right. are going to get a first round bye, which means the second round game will be played at their home gym. So yeah, Rick, Rick, I want to cut you off for a second because the UIC thing is fascinating. me. Go, go through that story for a second. Okay. So essentially what happened is UIC announced that they are leaving for the Valley 
and it, it got leaked in the media. And so they wanted to be up front with the Horizon League. They told them we're leaving early. We're not going to give you proper notice, which was supposed to be like 27 months or something like that. And in the league bylaws, they had created a bylaw, which by the way, UIC, it was pointed out that UIC was the one who asked for this bylaw to be added years back when they added it. Uh, But there was a bylaw that said, if you leave without giving the league proper notice, you'll be subject to the possibility of not being able to compete in postseason tournaments in the Horizon League for that year. And so the league presidents all got together and they all voted unanimously to not let UIC play in this year's postseason. And that goes for basketball, but it goes for all other sports too. And for some of those kids, it meant that, hey, like, a, you know, if you were a diver, you had already finished up your season and all you had left was your postseason tournament this week. And now it just disappeared from you. And you had nothing to do with the team making that decision. This, you're not, you know, you're not going to reap any of the benefits of the team going to the Valley. I, it was just a real good way to screw the student athletes, essentially. And so they got crushed in the media. UIC went to war against them through social media and uh, getting out quotes into the public and the newspapers and everything like that. And what happened was the board for the Horizon League came back together and decided that they will let UIC play in the postseason tournaments, which was, in my opinion, the right call. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are going to say, hey, uh, a rule is a rule. UIC knew that they were breaking the rules. They knew that there was a potential consequence. Heck, they were the ones that asked for it to be a rule when it was implemented. And to all I say, that's correct. But at the end of the day, the rule was still put in place, and it was a rule that was only ever going to impact the student-athletes negatively and not really impact any of the people who were in charge of making the decision negatively. So it was a bad rule to start with, and it's really ha- it's a really hard rule to enforce if you're also going to pretend that you have the best interests of the student athletes and you're putting that first. Yeah, no, I think it's the right decision for, for sure. They're, they're, I, I, listen, anything that helps the student athletes, I'm always for. I, I'm good with that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's just a silly rule to put in the first place, and then they had the option to do the right thing and say, you know what, it's been weird with COVID and everything. We get it. You got to leave you're just going to have to pay us some more money or what have you, which UIC agreed to pay any exit fees that they would incur. And they didn't do that. They decided, no, we're going to go ahead and unanimously decide that you can't participate in the postseason. And then they got crushed in the media. They got embarrassed. They still thought they were going to be right. They made a bunch of embarrassing comments publicly in the media. And then they ended up flip-flopping on it because they realized that they were going to be wrong. There's nothing you can do in that situation when you try to act like you're about the student athletes and then you do something like not allow them to participate in the postseason in a situation like this, where it's all about administrators and presidents and universities making more money, you're never going to win that battle. So just do the right thing by the kids. It's not that hard. If you really yeah. don't want the team to leave your conference early without giving proper notice, then charge them an exorbitant amount of money to do so to where it actually matters. And we'll keep them from doing it. It's the only thing they'll care about. The only right. thing these people care about is money. So quit making the kids pay for it and charge it to the game. Make UIC pay up. It's a big medical school. They got plenty of money. No, I, I'm with you on that. I, I And listen, in today's day and age of, of conference hopping, I think that's the only way. If you want a team, teams to not conference hop, charge them a big exit fee. And if they decide they want to conference hop for more money, fine. Then they pay the big exit fee. All good. Exactly. 
All right, you got anything to add to NKU? I mean, they've no. got a potential freshman of the year. Actually, it looks like a lock for freshman of the year at this point in Sam Vinson. I mean, they're right there. Hey, Rick, I looked in an old scorebook of mine from, from one of my early years as a freshman coach at Beachwood. You know Sam Vinson only scored two points against me. That's better than most Horizon League coaches can say right now. Now, he was also an eighth grader playing freshman, but I, I look back, I want it because I knew I coached against him. I want to see how, what he scored. I'm like, oh, we held him to two. Okay. I don't he, know that Greg Campy could have held him to two as an eighth grader. <laughs> Maybe not. Based on what I saw. So there you go. Maybe not. You're no, a better I, coach I, than I Greg will Campy. Say, I, I use that kid as an example for a lot of my kids. Of I remember him as an eighth grade point guard, and I thought, boy, this guy's a nice little player. He's going to be a pretty good little high school player. And then to watch him evolve over his career and see him year after year after year get better and better and better. And that's why I'm not tooting my own horn here, but you you heard it from. I, I thought the world of this kid coming out of high school. I think he's just a super talent. Um, you know, I, I could see him transferring from NKU at some point to, to, a, to a higher major and giving himself a chance to do that at some point. I hope it's not soon. I hope he stays at NKU for their sake, but he's, he's just, a, he's that product of, he grew. Certainly he was not six, five when I played against him. He didn't have that athleticism when I played against coached against him, but you saw it continue to evolve. And then you saw how hard he worked on his game. And I even thought, I think I told you this. I, I didn't think he was a knockdown jump shooter and he's getting to the point of being that. And if he, if, once he got to that point, I don't know how you guard the kid at that level. Well, and the other thing about him that's just unique is you'll see him at times just like, go up to a junior or a senior and rip the ball out of their hands and just punk them. His mentality and the way he attacks opponents and, and plays, there's a, there's a confidence level there that's not normal for freshman period and certainly not, you know, uh, kids we see in Northern Kentucky typically. So he's, he's special in that regard and yeah. he's exceeded expectations. We had one of the assistants on the coaches show, Eric Hout this past week because Darren Horn was busy and uh, we brought up, have you seen a freshman impact winning the way he does this season elsewhere in the league? And he said, I don't know if I've seen many players, period, impact winning the way he does in this league right now. And, it, you know, it's gone from is Sam Vincent freshman of the year in the Horizon League to is he just like an all league player, period? And I, I mean, that's a legit question at this point, because he is NKU's best player. And uh, NKU is looking like the most dangerous team in the conference right now. So yeah, it's a legit a question fan. to be had. I'm a big fan. All right, let's flip over to Kentucky skinny. Give me the headline or snapshot for Kentucky right now. Tied up with tie tie. And I think it comes down to this when he doesn't play and he got hurt again the other night against Tennessee, they're, they're not good enough to be a final four team. And when he does play, um, they are good enough to be a final four team. So I think their whole, their whole season is tied up in tie tie. Can he get healthy? Well, I, I think I would have gone something along the lines of national player of the year, contender national title, hopeful question mark. Uh, I, I like, I, that's the thing about Kentucky that I just can't figure out every time I think they've finally put their foot on the gas and they're going to plow through and look like a final four team. Then there's a performance like they had on Tuesday night at Tennessee and they lose well, by 13. And look, I didn't, I mean, that's not a terrible game. Tennessee's tough and they're certainly tough at their own gym. And they owed Kentucky one from that beating they put on them at Rupp Arena. Exactly. Exactly. But it's still based on the way that first matchup went. I'm thinking, man, Kentucky is going to get a monster quad one road win right here. 
and they're going to dominate the end of the schedule, you know, maybe only drop one more game the rest of the way. And that still could be the case. Maybe Tennessee is their last loss, but it just didn't quite feel that way watching that game Tuesday night. They didn't but, quite but, look but, like the dominant team that they've been. Rick, two of their three losses on the road inside the league to Auburn and Tennessee came without who? Ty Ty Washington. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a big deal. I think it's they a need huge him. deal. It's a huge deal. But if you're a national title contender, you know, and again, Tennessee's really good, especially at home. So yeah, and, and I think I think the fact that they 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 talked in terms of revenge after that game too. I mean, they, they owed them. They should. It was embarrassing. The first game was one hundred seven to seventy nine. So I, they got flat out embarrassed at Rupp Arena. It's not surprising to me that they played better. And without Ty Ty Washington, it is a different game. It's a different Kentucky team. But I guess I'm just one hundred percent convinced that this is a second weekend of the tournament type team. I'm not sure if they're a final four type team yet. And I think they, they, have the Washington they, are. they have the metrics. I mean, they're ranked third right now in Ken Palm. They're sixth in offensive efficiency, 12th in defensive efficiency. We've yep. talked how you got to be top 25 in both. They've got the things you want. They're even making some threes, although they never really shoot them. They're at least making them when they do shoot them occasionally just to keep the defense honest enough. But there's something that feels like, I mean, maybe it is just as simple as if Ty Ty's, healthy they're as good as anybody in the country and if he's not then they've got some questions i think that's i think it literally is that simple all right in that case let's go on to cincinnati skinny yeah i'm trying to think of a headline for 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 them i i guess they are who the aac coaches thought they were exactly that's that's perfect exactly that, that, that sounds exactly perfect, which is because uh, they got picked sixth or seventh, sixth, I think in sixth, I think. Yeah. yeah. That, and that's, yeah, I, I still think they're the third best team in the league on most nights, but they, they, they don't do it enough. Yeah, they're um, seventh. Right listen, now Memphis, Memphis is hot. Memphis, listen, Memphis is hot right now. I get that. And, and they obviously have a world of talent. So a world of talent and being hot at the same time or a, or a lethal combination, but you also don't go lose it, lose to Tulsa either. You just don't. Yeah. And you don't score 58 points against Temple. Um, that That's the biggest thing is the offense at times just looks embarrassingly bad. And we kind of knew that might be the case. They're ranked 142nd in offensive efficiency. Their field they're goal actually up there. De- their defensive efficiency is pretty good, right? They're 50. Yeah. So I yeah, mean, okay. it's, it's okay. Yeah. Um, their, their shooting percentages on offense from two point, from three point, their effective field goal percentage, all that stuff is just in the dumps. I mean, they're outside the top 250 and everything offensively. So that's just going to make it really hard. And we, I mean, we've talked about it when David DeJulius and Jeremiah Davenport are both making some shots for this team. It gives them a fighting chance against anyone in the conference, not named Houston. And if they're not shooting the ball really well from the outside, then this team can lose to anyone in the conference period. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. I, again, do I think with the right draw, and staying away from Houston, could would it surprise me to see them go to the AAC final? No. But could I also see them losing the first round of the AAC tournament? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the one good thing for them in that regard, if you're if you're like holding out hope that somehow they just pull a miracle in the AAC tournament is, we have seen Houston lose their last two games. They lost at SMU and right. at home to Memphis by 10 somehow. So, I mean, there is the possibility that Houston has – I thought, you know, we were just talking maybe a week or two ago, and I said – 
I don't think Houston is going to lose to anyone in the AAC. I don't think anyone's even close to them, including SMU and Memphis. And then lo and behold, they turn around and they lose to SMU and Memphis back to back. So there Me- is Memphis, the possibility Memphis now ta- that Houston can lose, I think. Right. Memphis talent-wise is, is as good as Houston talent-wise. But if you look at Ken Palm metric, metrics for Houston, I think they're way up there on both categories, are they not? Yeah, they're 10th in offensive efficiency, 16th in defensive efficiency. Yeah. They're number seven overall. If you're looking at Memphis, they're 57th in offense, 36th in defense, and 36th overall. So, Got a lot of talent, though, and they're hot. That's right. All right, let's wrap it up with the Musketeers, who are probably the hardest team to figure out this year. But if you've been watching this team for the last few years under this coaching staff, maybe they're not hard to figure out. Maybe it's exactly what we've come to expect. I'm going to go, I'm going to go one of two things, either groundhog day or musketeer maddening because they are maddening. And I can imagine what the fans are. I know you deal with them. I, I can only imagine a fan trying to, to, to really embrace this team. It's really hard. There's no excuse for last night. None. Yeah. Wednesday, they lost to St. John's 86, 73 at the Centos center. That's now three of the last four games have been losses. Two of those three losses are home losses to DePaul and St. John's, which, you know, St. John's is 72nd in Ken Palm right now. They're dangerous. You know, all of those things. You can apply all the caveats you want. They, they played UConn tough. They played Villanova tough, wh- whatever. But you have still lost three of your last four with two of those losses being home losses to DePaul and St. John's. That ain't going to get it done. No, and Rick, they got a legit chance to lose their next four. A legit chance. I mean, that's the thing. You had three out of four home games during this stretch that you lost three out of four. Right. That That's a problem because now you got to win at UConn, at Providence, at St. John's. Yeah, right. And you got a home game against Seton Hall that's going to be really difficult. And then, yeah, you have that last game at home against Georgetown, but I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, with this, this team, the problem with this team that I see compared to some other teams that seem to be at a similar level as Xavier, meaning similar metrics, they've had a similar season, whatever you, you reasonably look at them as a, a similarly talented team is Xavier doesn't ha- seem to have the same physical attributes and top end talent as some of those teams. And for whatever reason, they just seem to struggle to match up individually with even some of the lower tier Big East teams. Like Butler is a great matchup for them because Butler doesn't have much talent or athleticism, but they play a team like St. John's and who knows, maybe even it'll look like this against Georgetown. They just, it, they look like the lesser talented team. They it, It's like when you go into high school gym and you see the two teams warming up and you're like, oh boy, yeah, that team's going to be in trouble. And I, that's how Xavier kind of looked against St. John's. It's like, even if they're playing well, are they capable of guarding those guys? I'm right. not real sure. They don't look like those guys. Now, Rick, bracket matrix wise, even Ken Palm wise, they're what, 36 in Ken Palm? I don't have it up. I looked yeah, at it. Th- they dropped from 24 to 38 with the loss to St. John's in one game. Okay. Uh, bracket matrix are still a, a mid six seed. They're like the second six seed at the moment. And bracket matrix is not the perfect, perfect yeah. thing. Be all end all. And what? that is, that is updated prior to the St. John's yes, loss. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let me give you a nuclear option that they lose the last five, which would include an awful loss to Georgetown and they lose the first game of the big East tournament. Would that prevent them from making it? Or is that too big of a tumble based on where they are right now? Well, I mean, look, if they, if they lose out, you're talking about losing the last five games. 
Well, technically, you'd be losing the last six if you include last well, night's loss. Well, right. You lose your last six games. One, you only have 17 wins at that point. Right. So that ain't going to be enough, I don't think. If they lose out, they're not getting into the tournament. Now, the question to me is, what happens if they win one or two games the rest of the way? Let's say they beat Georgetown at home, and maybe they pull off the Providence, or they pull off the St. John's or the Seton Hall win. One of the two. At, at St. John's or home against Seton still, Hall. There's they're still an eight or nine seed. They're 19 wins at that point. They finished, yep. what, 19 and 11. And they would be one game under 500 in the conference, I believe. Where does that put them? I don't, I mean, I, they're right on the bubble at that point, I think. Especially I, I, with the narrative. Because, like, I know everyone says it doesn't matter how you're playing at the end of the season. But, but I don't, but it does. <laughs> I, the, the, the eye test in that regard, if you just absolutely crumble down the stretch, it's impossible for the selection committee to overlook to some extent. All right, I'm putting you on the spot while I talk. Will you call up Bracket Matrix then? And that's where I kind of want to. I mean, if you're a six-seed line right now, I think it would have to take an, an utter nuclear option to keep you out of the tournament at this point. Well, and I mean, that is a good point because when you start looking at the teams that right. are on that bubble game, I mean, you're talking about San Diego State, Memphis, North Carolina, Notre Although Dame. you could argue, yeah, you, know, you could argue though Memphis being as hot as it would be at that point potentially, right? Right. I mean, yeah, there's there's one or two teams. I mean, you know, Creighton could bypass Xavier right now. They're like around the play-in game if Xavier somehow just kept losing down the stretch here. You know, you could see Creighton maybe bumping up ahead of them somehow. Um, but you're really your Oregon, SMU, Michigan. You're talking about some teams that have really struggled this year. So that's the one saving grace is the bubble is still the bubble. Right. So the the thing is, I don't think that's really the question anymore for Xavier is just, you know, can you somehow find a way to back into the tournament? That's not what their goal is. That's not where this season should have been headed. So, you know, whether they end up a 10 or 11 seed or they don't make the tournament, I think the problem is the same at that point. And it's just as bad either way. Yeah, so so let me give you then then let's just say they they scrape their way into this tournament, and I still think they do. I don't think they're losing out. I don't think they're as much. As, I think they'll find a way in, but it yeah, ain't looking I, good I, right now because I don't think they're going to lose to Georgetown. I, I can I can honestly make a case for those other four games coming up for sure, but I don't think they lose to Georgetown at home. I don't. But again, they lost to Paul at home, so what do I know? All right, so if they just scrape but, into but, the hold tournament, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's be clear though; those are two very, very different things. The Paul, the Paul is one hundred and seven right now, and Ken Palm, Georgetown is one ninety nine. Yeah, no, so, no, no, I'm I'm, no, I'm noting you. It, those, it's still, those are you pretty you different. Sh- you shouldn't lose at home to one hundred and seven either. Ah, uh, I mean, yes and no. Like I look, I agree with you. It shouldn't happen, and certainly shouldn't happen where you lose to one hundred and seven and seventy two. Like. Right. In the little succession there. But, you know, people get a little carried away with that sometimes. DePaul's not a terrible team. They have some talent. All right. But, but let me go to the option of, of okay, you, you, you tank down the stretch here, but it is still enough to, to get you in the tournament. Is that enough for Travis Steele? Yeah, I don't. I mean, that's that's the question everyone wants to know right now. Right. And I mean, what does enough mean to just survive one more year as the head coach? Maybe. Right. No, I know. I think I, it that's does. What, that's what I'm wondering. If you, if you back your way into the tournament, I think he's still the head coach next year, but I don't know that that's really the conversation we're having right now. You know what I mean? Like I know fans want him fired immediately. I don't know if that's realistic or if that's um, 
a serious conversation at Xavier. But I think the problem that we're seeing is the bigger concern. Like, okay, let's say he's still the coach going forward. Well, what changes? What needs to change? How do you fix the situation right. quickly? I mean, I believe in the recruits he's bringing in for next year, but where does this leave you? You know, I mean, you're in year four of this thing. It's been a weird four years given COVID and everything, but it's, yeah, it's a really tough spot to be in. If you're, if you're Xavier, if you're Travis Steele, the best solution for everybody is just find a way to get hot and win three or four of these last games here and, right. and get some momentum going into the postseason. And, and, and it's not out of the realm. It's no, not, it's out of the not. Realm of right. Like some of Xavier's best teams have been in situations like this and then made the run in the postseason and, and all is forgiven. And you think that coach did a great job. So, I mean, it's still out there for this group and Travis Steele, but I would say that the thing that was most disheartening about the St. John's game is that was the first game where they really looked like they gave up or they, yes. you know, the game yes. went off the rails on them. They, yep. Their other losses, they, okay, they played a terrible first half, but man, that second right. half looks pretty good. And they look like the team they're capable of being, they keep fighting and it's, a, they had a chance down the stretch. They just couldn't make enough shots. This St. John's game. Wasn't that like, they didn't score for 10 minutes from the, the 11 minute mark to the one minute mark. And, you know, when it got down to like the final four under four media timeout, they're kicking the ball around, they're turning it over. St. John's is getting run out dunks and pushing the lead up to 16 points at the end. Like it became uh, a laugh. Ugly, ugly. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, like that, that's not a good sign. The fact that you just went off the rails, you look like you quit after the game. Jack Nungy is talking about how St. John's just wanted the game more, which is like, how how can you even be saying that when you've lost two of your last three, now three of your last four? And uh, Travis Steele said they look shell-shocked at the end. So and th- those aren't the things you want to hear about your team coming into the final two weeks of the season. No, exactly. That's exactly right. Skinny, anything else on the college basketball front? What else, what else can we add for fans that they need to know about right now? AAC is looking like a potential one-bid conference unless Memphis continues this tear. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I guess this, is, this isn't what they sh- should need to know. I, I'll kind of ask this of you, and then we'll wrap things up for the college basketball stuff, is, you know, Gonzaga for most of last year felt like this dominant behemoth that finally then got knocked off in the NCAA tournament. And I don't know if I feel that this year, and yet I think they're better. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Gonzaga looks really, really good again. But it the top of this year's college basketball is talked about differently it seems like everyone thinks it's more wide open but I would agree with you that I don't have a good answer to who I think is the second best team after Gonzaga I know I definitely I definitely don't at times it's, it's maybe Kentucky at times I think it may be Purdue and then Purdue loses 20 point leads at home to Ohio State and barely hangs on to win right Auburn has looked great at times right um, Arizona is second in Ken Palm that's, right that's now. the they one and it's funny losses and you know what I, and the two games I wanted to watch uh, one was the UCLA game from a couple Saturdays ago. It was an 11 o'clock tip, and I honestly, just because of the schedule of late, I just couldn't answer the bell for that. I've not watched one second of Arizona this year. It, well, they've been hard to catch, and I think you know no one really expected them to be this good under Tommy Lloyd in his first year. Their Ken Palm metrics are superb. Yeah, they're off the charts. Ninth defensively, six, uh, ninth offensively, six defensively. They're second overall. They they play fast. They look really good, um, but I don't know if I for some there's something about them that just keeps me from fully believe 
fully believing that they're like a final four team um, or that they're the second best team in the country after Gonzaga. So no, it's your point about Gonzaga being up at the top is a good one. Cause it does seem like there's almost more separation between them and the next best team this year, but it's not how the season is being talked about. And maybe that's just because of the way last year ended. I'm not sure, but yeah, maybe, um, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's been, uh, you know, it's been kind of a weird year. The ACC is super down this year. It's Duke mad, is the yeah. only good team in the ACC. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens down the stretch here. But um, with that being said, let's get into some Ask Any Anything. Sure. And we've, we've got a, a good selection of questions this week. We'll start right. off with some sports-related questions. Skinny, what are your top five college basketball arenas in the country and why? I love Michigan State's arena. I, it just feels like a basketball arena to me. The, the Breslin Center. I'm a big fan of of that. Um, I'm doing these off the top of my head here. Give me give me a second. Um, I love the old Coalfield House at Maryland, uh, just because of the history of it. And the the time I got to cover the game, I, I covered a Kentucky Maryland game back in I want to say it was 02 or 03 there at Coalfield House, and it just had this great sense of history to it. It was it was superb. I love the Cintas Center. I do. I, I love it. I think it's a great, it's a perfect size arena for college basketball, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I listen, I, I'm partial to Rupp only because I've been there so many times, but it just, it's just too damn big. Um, I love Florida's arena uh, when it's loud. I mean, back in those early 2000s when I was covering UK and, and Florida obviously had those really good teams under Billy Donovan. I mean, I've never been in a more loud arena than that place. I, I remember um, they, they closed out a season there in 02 or 03. I can't remember which. I took my dad. Um, bought him a ticket, and and uh, he, that's the first thing he told me after. He goes, I goes, I've been in a lot of arenas. My dad, I've never been in something that loud, and and I know it's it's not specifically a college basketball arena, but it's college basketball's played there, and I covered Kentucky in, in there. Madison Square Garden is still the mecca to me. It's it's still for it, whatever reason it is the, the place. It is the yeah, best. You there's there, nothing right? that really compares to Madison Square Garden, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I went there as a, and I lived in New York as a kid, Rick, and I went to some of my early early memories of actually going to sporting events where my dad and I go into Mets games. Uh, I went to a Yankees game or two and, and my dad and I went to a couple of Knicks games. We lived about 45 minutes to an hour outside the city in a city called Peekskill when I was really little. I was uh, six, seven, eight years old. But I those are kind of when you start to remember some of those events in your life. And so my, my first basketball event was in Madison Square Garden and, and I can't think of a better place to have gone for my first basketball game ever. It's, I don't, I can't speak to what it was like back in the day before they've I've never been in it since they did their most recent significant right. upgrades, which were them putting a billion dollars into upgrading the place without building any structure to it. So it just tells you how nice they've made it inside. And that's part of it for me is the it's just palatial. I mean, it, everything looks amazing. The concourse area is beautiful looking. It's not like the gray slab concrete that you're used to in most arenas. Um, inside the lighting of it is amazing even when it's not full for the Big East tournament it just feels special it it feels like um it's a big deal and yeah I don't know how else to explain it either really but there is no comparison for Madison Square Garden um the one that a lot of people would probably have on this list that I would I have. know and I didn't I didn't name Hinkle Fieldhouse I realize yep I, I appreciate you not naming Hinkle because it is a dump and I would have it in my bottom five I do like the fact that an arena where the sun shines in during day games. I do like that. Yeah, I mean, we can put a window in, a, in a, an arena for you. It doesn't have to be Hinkle, though. I mean, that, there's nothing yeah. nice about Hinkle. 
It just, it's <laughs> All right, just so what, which, which one might I have missed? I think most people would probably tell you you missed Hinkle. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that was kind of me answering that question already. Yeah. Um, oh. All right, more infuriating, the block or charge call or hanging on the rim technical? Yeah, I, I never understood, especially now with breakaway rims, right, of, of why that's still a thing. Why hanging, hanging on, on the, the rim, rim is stupid. Still- well, yeah, and, and and sometimes guys do like to do the chin up and all those things, but Who I, I cares? get back, right. Them. I get right. I get back in the day, Rick, where you could literally rip the backboard down, and some guys did. But now with the rim the way it is, the 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 tearaway rim, it, it, most guys they don't hang there for five years. It's sometimes they'll do a quick chin up. Sometimes it is literally to avoid an injury, and I'd rather you know swing on the rim for a second than than not know what's underneath me. Yeah. I think that's more annoying to me. You're never going to get me on the block charge partially. You and I actually had an argument over that the well, other day when, when NKU benefited from that call. And I think no. I asked you, do you like the block now or the charge now? And you gave me your answer, which I knew was coming. That's why I did it. But yeah, the, the hanging on the rim technical, I think is silly. Yeah. The hanging on the rim thing is it, I just let them do it because they're just not getting back on defense. They're already penalized yeah, right, themselves. Right, Who cares? Right, like I, right. I don't, if, if, if you inbound it quickly, you're five on four. Yeah, the sportsmanship side of that, I just don't understand. I could care yeah, I less about a guy swinging from the rim while we're inbounding the ball and, and racing it up the floor. Um, th- now, as for us having an argument, we did not have an argument. You thought you were going to like catch me slipping because NKU took a couple of key charges. Shout out to Trayvon Faulkner late yep. in the game against Green Bay. I have never said that players shouldn't take charges if their coaches ask them to and the game's going to tell them to, and that doesn't make it a smart play. You just don't like the rule. It's just a terrible rule, and it should be eliminated from the game. Now, if the, it's still going to be in there, then it's still a smart play by Trayvon Faulkner late in the game to slide in and take one and get a turnover, but it's a terrible rule, and it's it's a much cleaner game, a much easier game to eliminate if you eliminate it, as seen by the NBA. They really don't have the block charge situation anymore, and it's a much cleaner and easier game to watch. So, uh, yeah, you're never going to change my mind on that. Is And the biggest thing about it, Skinny, isn't about whether or not you should be able to take charges or not. It's the fact that refs aren't good enough to officiate it. That's the real problem. It is a huge problem for it's officials to it's make that call. And it's I will say significant. it's a guess. Yeah, but it, yeah. but it becomes such a big part of the game at the college and high school levels because every coach is obsessed with it and they all play such tight defense and there's so many bodies in the paint that there's just – way too many collisions as a result it's dangerous it makes the game harder to watch it slows everything down and the refs suck at calling it it's they're they're huge calls going either way and they're always a 50 50 call you have absolutely no idea what they're going to call from play to play when they blow their whistle on a block charge situation you just have no clue Dude, you have no many time how many times during a game when that's called in, in games i coach where i just yell at the official now you're just guessing Exactly. But that's that's my whole point. You get it as as bad as anybody because you see how bad the officials are at your level of trying to decipher what happened in those situations. Just take it away. Don't let them have that that situation and you can just coach defense better as a result. I'm telling you, as a coach, you will end up appreciating that. Hmm. Yeah, well, you won't have to watch so many crappy calls by freshman level officials. Good call. All right. Uh, can we officially say that Cincinnati is a football town and not a baseball town, Skinny? I've thought that for a long time. I mean, I think it's always, I think it's been been that way since, since honestly, probably the mid-90s. It just, I mean, it is what it is. Now, listen, Reds fans will flock out if things go really well again, and that's great, and, and that's kind of the way, but 
I think everybody's, this has always been, football's the national sport now. It's no lie. Listen, I'm a kid who grew up as a baseball junkie. That's my generation. But I can fully tell you that football is clearly America's sport, period, end of story. And that makes it Cincinnati's sport. It is. I've always thought it's a little bit dumb to do the, like, they're a this town or a that right. town. No, they're a winning town. If, if one of the sides are playing well, they love that team more than the other but, one at but, all. But time. boy, did you! But boy, did you see a lot of people come out of the woodwork for this though? And I don't mean that in a bad I, way. I'm not I, talking. I'm, I mean the, the the groundswell of enthusiasm as soon as they won that first playoff game just got off the charts, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And yeah, understandably so, because for a generation they've not seen this. I do think the football thing is more popular because you do have so many people involved with fantasy it's football and gambling on it. It's, the commitment isn't nearly the same. So right. I do think that's a little bit different. But also, I mean, hell, if the Reds make a run to the World Series, this place is going to be very similar in that regard. You know, no in question. terms of selling out merchandise, packing all the bars, all of that time. We talked about it last week on the podcast. Cincinnati is very good at turning things into a social event and going out to yep. drink and packing the banks and all that. We love doing that type of thing. So I think a lot of it just has to do with which one is successful at a given time. But your point is a good one that football has just taken over as a more popular sport in general. So I do think I would go with if the two are both at their peak popularity Football is probably driving the town a little bit crazier than baseball is. The one thing I do notice about the two sports, though, is the bang- the Bengals are a very local fan base. I mean, it is just Cincinnati. You can't go up too far into Ohio and still have a lot of Bengals fans or too south oh, or I west. Or I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I did three radio shows in Lexington, and it sounded like that was a pretty enthusiastic place. Yeah, okay. I mean, Lexington, maybe, whatever. But I mean, put it this way I was in Dayton the weekend of the Super Bowl, and people up there were not a bunch of Bengals fans necessarily. You know, like there, there are Pittsburgh fans up there, there are Browns I, fans up there. Like right. Ohio is very divided. Um, I wish I could find this. Yeah, I wish I could find this column. When I worked at the Post, Joe Posnanski, people may know, he's a, obviously does a lot of books now and, and whatnot. He was our columnist, and, and he did a column once, and this was a pretty cool column, and I wish I could remember where he found it. He, he, he decided to drive up some back roads of Ohio and figure out where does Bengals country end, where does Browns country start. And I can't remember what, what kind of town he pinpointed as such. It was a really good read, really good piece. It was back in the, I guess, the mid-90s or, or so, somewhere along that that, that vein uh, where when he wrote the column, maybe even early 2000s, whatever, when he wrote the column. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there is a line, there, there is a lot of different places in Ohio where nobody cares about the Bengals, even though it's Ohio. Because I kept hearing that nationally of, oh, Joe Burrow, Ohio kid, and, and all the parts of Ohio rooting for the Bengals. No, no, you're not right on that. I mean, yeah, that's, like, Joe Burrow is an Ohio kid, but there's probably more fans in Athens, Ohio, who are fans of the Browns because that's what the, yeah. the team was back in the day. A lot of Steelers and Browns fans in Ohio. And that's not yeah. just that. Just in general, I think football is a little more territorial, where in baseball, I Reds the Reds fan base is pretty national. And especially in this region, it really goes out a ways. I mean, you got a lot of people in Indiana that are Reds big country. times Reds fans. Yeah, I mean, like, that that's a real thing. And maybe it's just because of the Reds' history. Maybe it's because of how baseball is as a sport. I don't know. But it does seem like there is, like, a bigger uh, sprawling Reds fan base than there is for the Bengals. The Bengals does seem to be more contained to right here. So, yeah, I don't know I, why I, matters, I just, but that's I, my thought. Rick, I, I just hope in my lifetime we become a soccer town. That's what I hope. Oh, I think SE Cincinnati is uh, basically going to do exactly what the Bengals did. They're, they've got the same plan in place. They uh, have absolutely tanked the last few years. And now, uh, who are they getting with the first pick this year, Skinny? 
I, I think it's already taken place, believe it or not. I don't know if it's the, if it's the Joe Burrow of midfielders or not. Well, let's hope. Um, all right. Uh, this is from our guy, Mo Egger. Uh, we talked about this on his show on Wednesday when I made my appearance, and uh, he wanted to continue the conversation between you and me on this podcast. He said, please rank the top 10, quote, roll the balls out and let them play college basketball coaches of all time. And also is skinny a roll the balls out and let them play coach. Yeah, you are most you, definitely not a roll the balls that, out and let them play. Coach. No question. Yeah. I was going to say, dude, I am far from roll the balls out. Now I do like, I let my kids play. I get freedom of play, uh, but I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a bit, you, you know me, I've told you, I'm not a huge set guy. I've got sets, but I'm not dialing up a set every day on any down charge who any coach who likes the charge as much as you do can't be a roll the balls out and let them play coach. That's good. No, I'm not. I'm definitely not a roll the balls out guy. Yeah. I, 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 I can't look myself in the mirror. Um, well, you know, I got like, 10 of them, huh? Well, you know, I always thought was you, yeah, you know, I always thought was a roll the balls out guy, Who? and it's probably not fair. Was Denny Crum, and that's probably not fair. I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, the other guy I would put in the really good category, like the the Jer- good exchange, Jerry Tarkanian. Okay, that's an even that's another really good one. I would put uh, Roy Williams in that mix. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's probably again not fair because. He's a great well, you, coach, but I think yeah, you, he's the ultimate freedom coach when you think about letting us guys is, just but do I, but, I, but, I'll, but I'll tell you what, and I've tried to install this the last handful of years, and it's just not gone as well as I would have liked. His secondary fast break stuff is really, really good. For sure. But, I mean, that's, you know. But there's, but there's there's some freedom to that, but there's also some structure to that, too. There is. I'm not I'm not acting like Roy Williams can't coach. I think when people no, hear I'm this, with you. they I, think I, this I think, guy no, can't I think that's coach. a really good I think that's a really good answer. I, I do. I mean, if we're, if we're ranking them, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good one. I, I absolutely agree with that. Let me think of a few others here. If, if I can, you know, you know, who I think is in that. And maybe you wouldn't think this because defensively he's, he's a pretty damn good coach, but I think Cal is kind of in that mold of a little, I mean, the dribble drive and all of that stuff, I think is a little bit more of that get acquire talent and let them play type. Yeah. Mode. But if you listen, if you listen to him enough, He's big into fundamental things on the defensive end and blocking out all those things. Uh, I'm I'm with you on the defensive side, um, but I, I'd still say ultimately he's kind of in that mode. Now, I don't know if we would consider him like, because again, a lot of people think of this as a negative connotation when they think of it. So I think they wouldn't want to do that to Cal. He's a Hall of Famer and what have you. And same with Roy well, I think it, I think. I think an easy answer to this, he's not coaching any longer, but my God, he just he usually would sit on the scorer's table looking disinterested was Chris Mullen. <laughs> so that was my number one when I was talking to Mo, as oh, he's like yeah, the most I mean, obvious he, he, roll the ball. He literally out. looked like like he was just like an observer. You know, I'm gonna sit here, you guys play, and yeah, if you need me to take a timeout or a sub and hell, you know what, I got assistance, you guys can sub for me. Well, and really on that note, I mean, maybe most of the St. John's coaches that we've seen I mean, Steve Lavin was kind of that type of guy. Um, it, it Mike Anderson ha- isn't really that guy because he plays like a matchup zone and he right, presses right. all the time and stuff, but like, he's still kind of on offense. It's a lot of just spread you out and go type offense. Well, um, I, I was guessing, the- I was guessing cause, you, cause you said this came up yesterday when you talked with Mo, I'm going to guess did this start with the whole Penny Hardaway conversation. Cause you see was playing Memphis or played Memphis. It did not. I actually don't even remember how it started, but it was not. And I would not put Penny in that at all because he is very much a, slow it down, grind you out, very structured defensive coach. And really, they actually run a lot of sets on offense, too. They're just not good offensively. But I, but I think I think Penny's actually a fairly structured coach. He just isn't 
hasn't proven to be very good, especially on yeah. offense. So we've only come up with seven or eight. I'm trying to think if there's any others off the top. Well, of my head so so Mo had a really good one, uh, which is one of the ultimate roll the balls out and let them play guys. Oliver Purnell. Yeah, and it that, really didn't work very well. No, but he is like the perfect definition of of what you think of when it's just like get me some dudes. I don't care where they're from, JUCO transfer. Just get me some talent and uh, put them in some headbands and let them go ball. <laughs> That's a good. That is a good one. I'll be over here in my six XL suit. Uh, that, that's actually a good one. I'm, I'm going to give you that one. Yeah. All right. We'll just end on Oliver Purnell, unless you have any other uh, good names to add to that list. Yeah, it's no, it's I, hard I off bad. the top of the head. I should have given you more time it, it, to think about it. No, that's all right. I I feel bad for including Denny Crum because I really do like Denny Crum. I, I in fact, he's got a couple of zone sets I still like a lot. But yeah. well, same with. I mean, same with Roy, same with Coach Cal. I think those three are like the the good version of the roll them out and let them play and right. give their team freedom type coach. All right. Uh, ask Skinny, rank these Joes for most beloved in Cincinnati. We've got Joe Nuxall, Joe Morgan, Joe Votto, Joe Burrow, and Joe Sunderman. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, I think... Right or wrong, Joe Joe Votto is at the bottom of that list, right? He's pretty polarizing for whatever reason. Okay. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I, I would have probably put Sunderman at the bottom just from lack of either notoriety or the fact that at least UC fans are going to say they don't like him. But I don't even know. He's, he's hard not to like. I mean, that's the thing. Listen, Everybody he, loves Joe. Anyone that's ever he, met him likes him. So, and listen, I love I love Andy McWilliams. I do, and I'm on a, a LaRosa's committee with him. I see him a couple times a year. I love Andy Mac, but Andy Mac was polarizing. And for I mean, he was such a Xavier yes. homer that Joe doesn't come off that way. But listen, Joe wants Xavier to win. You can tell in the tone of his voice, but nowhere near the Xavier homer Andy Mac is in any way, shape, or form. That's correct. Yeah, I agree with that. But okay, I'll go. I'll go. I agree with Vado because he is much more polarizing. So Votto and then probably Sunderman, right? Yeah, just because of lack of notoriety. I'm I'm with you on that. I'll go Joe Morgan just because even Reds baseball fans who are Reds who are baseball, you know, nerds, if you will, for lack of a better term, hated the fact that he didn't embrace analytics when he did TV. They hated it. True. Yeah, he was he was big time criticized as an analyst. I know you're going to disagree with this. I'm going to go Burrow number two, only because there's still a little segment of the fan base that probably didn't like and didn't like at the time, certainly, him saying there isn't anything to do in Cincinnati. And who in God's name didn't love Joe Nuxall? Come on now. Find me one Find me one person that didn't love Joe Nuxall. That's... That's fair. The only thing I would say about that, and he is, did it long. He did it longer. Now there's recency bias for Joe Burrow, mind. Yeah, you. that's what I was gonna say. I think the the recency bias and the fact that there's been a lot of time. I mean, there's a, you know, young adults right now probably really don't know Joe Nuxall. No, that's right. You're probably right. You know, I mean, he, I'm, I'm I'm talking kids in their mid to late twenties probably don't really have many memories or thoughts on Joe Nuxall. So, uh. You know, the, the older crowd that really has those fond memories would probably have Nuxall number one. But overall, I'm probably going Burrow at this point in the city. Yeah, I, it's re- hard re- to check that because of recency bias. Re- yeah, recency bias. I mean, if I were to ask you where Ken Anderson ranked after the 81 Super Bowl among people in Cincinnati or Boomer Esiason after the 88 Super Bowl, uh, you would have had them number one in whatever ratings you would have had. And I get it. I mean, when guys do things like that and they're the quarterback – 
um, the recency bias will clearly take over. I will say Boomer was definitely number one in the Boomer rankings um, at that yeah, time. No question. So. No question. Well, because there's really only other one, one other Boomer, and he's such a pain in the ass. That would be Chris Berman. <laughs> yeah, and he's not a Cincinnati guy, so that that's correct. Doesn't count. All right, that's all I got, Skinny. All right, good stuff. Appreciate it, Rick. Thanks so much. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, some more, uh, maybe even some Bengals postseason talk. We'll see where we go from there. Hopefully, we got some baseball to talk about. If not, we'll talk a lot of college basketball because we are gearing closer and closer to the NCAA tournament and much, much more. For Rick Roaring, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope Edition, presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lake.